Okay, Nigel, I have a little poem to recite to you that I think will be, you know, fit in with our theme today of preservation. Okay, so I'm going to- I like poems. Good, me too. I also like poems. Maybe you've heard this one I mean that in the most masculine way. Yeah, in a very masculine and manly (laughs) way. Okay, here it goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Boom. So if you were in like AP English, this is like a really... (laughs) 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 This is um, Ozymandias by Percy um, Bysshe uh, Shelley. So I thought it would fit well with our podcast today because, well, the whole point of the poem is that there's this sculpture out in the in the vast desert. Look at all the amazing things that I made that are here, you know, you people of the future, but none of those things remain. And so much of human history, the things that people have created over thousands of years, they they don't survive and we don't. We don't find them. So what does that mean about mean for archaeology and for the sort of questions that we're trying to answer and the work we're trying to do? Buried underneath the sands of yeah. time. Gone. But like that poem, I like it. Well, I mean, it's not like some I mean, it's pretty like famous one, but like I like it because it makes me think of like in Egypt, there's some freaking stone statue out in the middle of the desert, you know, however, thousands of years ago there was like a city or whatever there but now like all that shit's gone yeah (laughs) yeah which is how you know most things that people have created like that's what happens right i think there's a um there's this huge myth that goes on in popular culture again all these movies that have come out about related to archaeology in some way um i think really (laughs) push this myth about how the things that were deposited by ancient peoples no matter where they are in the world are still there waiting for our discovery yeah perfectly like they were like left there right right when in reality (laughs) (laughs) really couldn't be farther from the (laughs) truth couldn't be further from the truth it takes really specific situations for things to last a long time so that's what we're going to talk about in the podcast today we're going to start with some discussion of how preservation is portrayed in popular culture and movies that we see. We're going to talk a little bit about like the realities. What are the very specific circumstances that you need for certain artifacts and objects, especially ones made out of things like wood or organic material to preserve so that we can find them. Nigel and I have our, as always, we have our two example objects, which thankfully we have neither of those here with (laughs) us today in the studio. (laughs) Right. So our examples this time aren't like things that we possess, but they're, um, well, they're our uh, experience of the most well-preserved. Craziest thing that we've heard of that was preserved and that archaeologists found. Yeah. And then we're going to finish up with special treat we actually got to interview special guest yeah special guest dr jesse halligan um and we'll give her a bona fides later but um, dr jesse halligan she has actually done a lot of work and research at one of the oldest archaeological the oldest archaeological site in the state of florida she's actually found the oldest object that has was made by people that was ever found in Florida up to this point. And so we're going to talk to her about preservation and how that affects the research that she does. And I, you know, I didn't ask her in our interview if it's one of the oldest sites in the country. And I think it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. definitely. The entire United States people. And she's amazing. And so, yeah. 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 She's a very smart person. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome to the Materialist Podcast, episode eight. The eighth episode. The eighth one follows the seventh before the ninth. Yeah. Uh, that's like a baseball thing, the ninth, the ninth inning. Yeah, right? this is like the top of the eighth. Top of the eighth. Yeah. I played Little League once. <laughs> I've had to watch lots of baseball. I hit, so. I hit a triple. It's enjoyable. I went to a terrible um, pool party afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> My baseball career. <laughs> I don't have a baseball card. I think I got a trophy, though. That's good. <laughs> it makes you feel special. I was always the epitome of one of those, like, um, what are the trophies that you get for just like participation? participation. <laughs> <laughs> I still got like the trophy, good personality sports award or whatever. <laughs> like you tried hard. You showed up with shoes. You know, when you think about how long things last, there's a term for that kind of thing. It starts with a P. Um, and it's not jelly. But it's like pickles? Pickles. It oh. is pickles. Preservation. Oh, man. Yeah. On the episode today, we'll be talking about preservation. This is going to be a two-part episode. Yeah. It's a big in because it's a big in in archaeology. Yeah. And Florida is really, uh, is really special. It's really special when it comes to this subject of preservation. And we're going to be going into so much of that business in the future. Right. So in this part, the preservation episodes are part one. We're going to focus on preservation in the past. So how do right. these objects that we as archaeologists find, how do they survive for, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years? A millennia. Yeah, millennia for us to um, uncover them. And then also, you know, why is it that some of these objects don't survive for right. us to find? Right. So <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, in this episode, we're going to talk about... Um, the sorts of things that preserve um, easily and the sorts of things that in a lot of cases um, are destroyed and we don't find. We're going to talk about some of the mechanisms of, you know, how these things that are, you know, organic materials like um, cloth or um, wood are able to be preserved in these really special cases. And then what are the effects that that preservation or, you know, lack of preservation has on archaeology and like the kind of questions that we have and the, the things that we can learn about people in the past. Cool. And then in the second part, which um, just to give you a teaser, we're going to um, think about the future of preservation and how are the objects that we make today going to survive or not for uh, people in the, the distant, distant future mm -hmm. to find and be mad about because we ruin the earth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we are currently in the process of ruining the earth. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, because you know people have been in Florida. I guess it's approximated around fifteen thousand years. Yeah, at least, at least. And so, picture in your mind, listeners, uh, fifteen thousand years into the future. Yeah, I'm thinking Mad Max, but hopefully, yeah. it's not like that. We so, need to introduce ourselves, Nigel. Oh, okay. My name is Nigel Rudolph, and I am the public archaeology coordinator at the Florida Public Archaeology Network office in Crystal River, and... And I'm Becky O'Sullivan. I'm the public archaeology coordinator at the West Central Regional Center of the Florida Public Archaeology Network, and... Nigel and I both work for USF, yeah. and today we are at our USF uh, recording studio here in beautiful Tampa. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, we have our, um, we're, we're in Becky's office, and uh, we've laid out a couple of oh my Becky's God. Uh, sweaters. We're using my like cardigan <laughs> collection to like dampen the sound like on my desk. <laughs> it's like all I need is like a cat in here and I'll be like super, it'll be like yeah. the old lady like Girl. triumvirate. <laughs> yeah. I forgot to put on my headphones. Oh my God. When we discuss preservation, one of the most important things we have to connect to is the mechanisms in which this preservation happens in Florida and why it's some places good, some places not so good. Right. And I think some objects are more durable than others. So right. 
the real like special preservation that we're talking about is really preservation of like organic material like you yeah. know like cotton um even our bodies like mm-hmm. animal bones and like those sort of things so things that um in general would get like eaten up and destroyed over time mm-hmm. in these special circumstances they can be preserved right so think about this if you leave and i'm sure you have left a piece of wood outside of your house whether it's uh oh i think a hurricane's coming i better buy some plywood and stick <laughs> it up on my windows and then the hurricane doesn't come and then you have this piece of wood that slowly rots yeah actually relatively quickly um it, it rots and, and falls apart and becomes unusable okay when you're dealing with pre-contact Native America in Florida, you know they were using a lot of wood, wood objects Absolutely. too. Their 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 clothing was made out of organic materials. The nets they were using were made out of organic materials. Those things aren't going to last unless they are in very specific, extreme, extreme, in, extreme environments. Extreme. Let's talk about wood preservation first. These extreme environments that you would think would be like the harshest, right? But They actually provide like the mechanisms to preserve these organic materials like wood. Extremely dry environments like a desert. Yeah. Or on the other hand, extremely wet environments like a peat bog or like, you know, the mucky bottom of a pond. Or extremes in temperature. So like super, super cold, like the top of a mountain or like in a glacier or super, super hot. Like, you know, going back to our desert example, like in ancient Egypt, think of like Mm -hmm. all the mummies and the really like hot, arid kind of conditions. But then also in some of the wet environments like peat bogs, you also get an environment where there's very little oxygen, anaerobic environment. Even the little bacteria that are living, like they can't live down there and eat up all the organic matter. Because they need air to... Yeah, they need to breathe, you know. Mm -hmm. You get much better preservation because you don't have those little bacteria um, kind of eating up the the different wooden artifacts or whatever is is in there. Right. When archaeologists or the general public discover like Native American dugout canoes, Mm -hmm. um, what you're finding that's preserved is the part that has been submerged in the mud, in the muck. Right. And then once those canoes are uncovered, then you're letting in that oxygen and all those little buggies can start like doing their work and like breaking them down really quickly unless you put them into some kind of conservation to to stabilize them. The better preservation that we have at these various sites, the fuller picture that we get of like the human experience. Oh, let's talk about our weirdly preserved objects. I'll go. Okay. So like I had mentioned earlier, we uh, aren't able to bring our objects to the table this time. Thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. (laughs) So we're going to be just talking about them. I went to a couple of summers ago um, and we visited this museum in Arequipa, Peru, um, called the Museum of the and- of Andean Sanctuaries. And there we got to see in this glass case mm-hmm. the maiden of the Andes, the, the mummy of a uh, like 12 to 15-year-old mm-hmm. girl, Momia Juanita, the mummy Juanita. And it was super weird because in, in the United States you don't typically see human remains displayed in museums. Well, you, sh- you shouldn't. <laughs> like, hopefully you don't. We don't need to do that like, anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we don't need to do that anymore. And so it was really, really, it was really weird seeing it there and watching people, like, gawking over this this child that's laying now in displayed in this museum. But it's one of the most amazing cases of preservation. Now, mm-hmm. this this girl was a sacrifice, and uh, she was discovered on this ma- this side of this mountain, Mount Ampato, in southern Peru, uh, by anthropologist Johan Reinhard and his proven climbing partner, Miguel Zarate. And so they discovered uh, Juanita, um, and she was amazingly preserved with hair, um, even her, like her like eyelashes, her eyelashes even, like, she just looked yeah. like she was asleep lots of skin um so just really amazing preservation on this mummy and the case that she was kept in at this museum i mean we're talking like a museum there's like pictures on the wall and like regular displays of ceramics and all this stuff and then you turn around turn a corner the room is really dark and then there's just this big see-through freezer Mm-hmm. with this <laughs> this mummy sitting in there. And it was really disconcerting. It was really bizarre because of how preserved it was. I mean, it was, we were looking at a dead body, and, you know, 
Yeah, but it was like so well preserved. It was so well preserved that it was it wasn't like looking at a skeleton, which right. I've seen so many times. And all her like clothes, <laughs> right? And everything, all the textiles, all the really textiles were still there. And then they had another display of some of the textiles that she was wrapped in that was just the adjacent to that. So these two examples of like organic preservation were mm-hmm. just really really bizarre. I guess that's one of the really cool things about archaeology in Peru though is that you have these like Andean landscapes where you have super cold and then also really dry environments so you get all this amazing preservation of like the textiles and the um what are the knotted like quipus quipus yeah mm-hmm. um and and that sort of thing that we just really don't find in florida really right. or like you know anything yeah shit rots here yeah <laughs> real quick yeah so what is your example about preservation miss becky okay um so my example is like from a really different sort of environment but it's another sort of environment that people some people you know think about when they think about kind of crazy archaeological preservation so you ever heard of like the bog bodies I like have. in ireland yeah. you know i was just watching a horror movie about that oh that's pretty cool so like you know the peat bogs like the dudes out there cutting the peat and then they come across these like preserved bodies that are in there and you still see like the rope around their neck and like whatever um so those are pretty cool but yeah. there's some other another kind of archaeological find that has been made in the past in these bogs especially in ireland that i think it's kind of cool that these things survive and so that's um bog butter <laughs> delicious yeah <laughs> sounds delicious so um besides finding you know ancient dead bodies in peat bogs the other thing that people have uncovered in the past in these peat bogs that have been preserved is bog butter and that's these yeah it sounds really gross <laughs> um but it there are these wooden containers like um barrels or like you know carved out wooden containers that are full of ancient butter it's actually butter like it like what is what is the dairy yeah some of them are like butter made from dairy like butter like you would think about it and then archaeologists have actually done testing on a lot of these and some of them they found that it's it's toast testing like on toast i don't know i'm sure there's people that have tried it before (laughs) it's pretty gross but then um the other kind is like um like rendered animal fat like beef Uh, tallow or whatever that kind of thing so and some of these can be like thousands of years old like so thousands of year old butter so in 2009 in Kildare County, Ireland, 3,000-year-old oak barrel was found that was full of 77 pounds of butter. Holy cow. So this is not like just like a stick of butter that you like put there like to, like you forgot about it. This is like huge amounts of butter. And then in 2013, there was another find of like 100 pounds of butter that could be as old as like 5,000 years old. And that's that's not related to the Irish butter that I see at Publix. <laughs> I don't think that they <laughs> it's uh, not the same shit. They preserve it there, <laughs> but the reason that I mean this butter is able to be preserved in these wooden containers is because of the unique kind of soil chemistry and environment of the peat right. bog. So it's one of those anaerobic environments. So those little buggies aren't able to get in there to to get to the butter. And actually one of the reasons that archaeologists think that people were burying these like huge barrels of butter in the <laughs> peat bogs in the past is for preservation. To that they age were, them? Well, to age them, to make them like taste a little put a little funky taste mm-hmm, like on them, mm-hmm. make them a little like, you know, kimchi kimchi, yeah. like, you know, it can be aged in the ground. But also as a kind of a form of preservation like before you know refrigeration Refrigeration, so it's like cooler yeah and so you can like stash 100 pounds of butter in the peat bog (laughs) and come back to it a year later or something Um, nobody's ever eaten it have they like have people tried it i i was looking at uh, one of the articles i was looking at it said that in the past people have really tried it which is pretty gross maybe if it wasn't like Five thousand years old. If it was only like a couple hundred years old, maybe I don't know. I would, would not try. eat. I would not eat. Ask <laughs> <Yeah, like, laughs> me a bagel. It's pretty gross, and it looks pretty gross. But um, we'll put pictures of oh, delicious our objects on the on the Instagram. And I'm and I I guess I'll put put pictures of uh I mean the maiden of the Andes is all over the internet as it is. So I don't yeah. think it would be too insane to. But it just and like what you were talking about too with the ice maiden is like it makes me think about with archaeology we're like oh you know it belongs like it should be preserved belongs in a museum like that kind of a thing but when you find a hundred 
pound barrel full of butter that's like 3,000 <laughs> years old or whatever? Do you put that on display yeah, in a museum? Right. Like, how do you <laughs> yeah, conserve right. that? Like, what do you do with that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just think it creates sometimes um, finding these well-preserved objects, it creates more problems than, you know, taking them out of that context than if you didn't because so much has to go into like yeah. preserving them once you take them out of their environment that they're in. Don't eat bog butter. It's <laughs> gross. <laughs> uh, bog butter. It's like, that's hilarious. <laughs> We're going to go off on a side. What did, we, what did we call these things? Our our little like side tangents. Yeah. Side focuses. Archaeology in the cinema. There's so many movies out there that are dealing with this subject. And most of them, all they do is perpetuate this idea of like... Um, where where the thing is laid down or where the thing is built it will be there for eternity <laughs> right yeah i mean it just totally like incorrect i mean that'd be great if that was true yeah. i guess like for archaeologists but not like for anyone else because then it would be like <laughs> there'd be right. nowhere left to live one movie that comes to mind immediately is The Goonies from 1985. Yes, classic. Yeah, classic movie. I'm sure most of us have seen it. And if you millennials out there haven't seen The Goonies, go see it. Go see it. Educate yourself. Yeah. And I have to say that I recently <laughs> rewatched The Goonies and uh, I had this idea in my head that it was this wonderful, like, child friendly movie. It's like really kind of like. <laughs> it's totally not. Like, like a little, like the, a little over the Cuss edge. words yeah, every like other it's word. A little, it's like, <laughs> a little racy. Yeah, it's a little racy. It's a little racy. Some serious fat shaming going on. When you're a child, you know, like, you're like a pure soul and you don't like think about it that way. So they're on a quest, basically. The whole point mm -hmm. of the movie is this quest um, to save their little neighborhood called the Goondocks. And they find a treasure map in one of the Goonies' father's uh, attic. And, you know, they stumble on this yeah. this special medallion and mm -hmm. a map. You know, everything is perfect, but that's what starts them on their right. quest. And then the whole movie really deals with this this concept of preservation. You know, they, like, go underground. You know, they, The freaking pirate ship the, is, like, still floating yeah, in the, the water underground. Like, okay. Hundreds of years no. later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the skeletons are still standing there. Yeah, like, One-Eyed Willie yeah. is, like, sitting there, right. like, in the, like, a skeleton, like... This yeah, would not happen. Definitely uh, is not a good example of how I, I don't know of a good film example of like proper preservation. That's like pro I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Nigel. My the, like truly the first movie that came to mind when I was trying <laughs> to think of like preservation related movies is another Sean Astin uh, <laughs> movie. So like there's this yeah like Sean Astin like through line for yeah. both of these, um, but is the 1992 movie Encino Man. Oh. <laughs> Cheyenne's favorite. Yeah. So uh, if you've ever seen Encino Man, maybe not as like kind of canon movie you have to see yeah. as Goonies, but yeah. worth, a, worth, worth a watch, mm, maybe. maybe. Yeah. If you are, want something like totally ridiculous right. to watch. It's got Polly Shore. Poly, yeah. Polly Shore, <laughs> Sean Astin, and Brendan Fraser would probably right. one of his like first movie yep. debuts, yep. I would mm -hmm. say. For his career tanked. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it also shows it's a really good example of some of the kind of incorrect ways that people think about preservation, because literally like Polly Shore and Sean Astin are like digging in the backyard, They're digging a pool. Right? Yeah. And they come down <laughs> on a hunk of ice that is like still frozen in the middle that's of like, Southern California, right, in the middle of Southern California. And a hunk of ice. And they pull it out and it defrost it and brendan fraser is like a caveman dude who like yeah. comes back to life right. like from being in this right. ice yeah. the way that these things are depicted in movies is obviously like totally different than what we as archaeologists experience although if i found like a frozen brendan fraser on a dig that wouldn't be super bad <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely not thought out brendan fraser <laughs> <laughs> um yeah other uh, another movie that uh, in my very brief research related to preservation there's this movie called secrets of the inca with charlton heston and it's basically charlton heston is is a researcher that stumbles on the mysterious 
mountain village of Machu Picchu in mm-hmm. Peru, um, which I'm lucky enough to have been to three times. Um, and it's actually filmed there. It's actually oh, filmed cool. at Machu Picchu, which is, but it's all, it's, it's the same thing. It's not only are these relics, the, the structures themselves created by the Inca are still in perfect condition, but there's also like Incan people. Yeah. <laughs> like they're, still, they're still up there. It's like time has stopped. Right. And all, even if you think of like ultimate archaeology movie, Indiana Jones, like, yeah. you know, when he's in the, like the temple, like all the like he's in like a temple in the jungle. Yeah. Right. And so even like all the the wood and the ropes that have probably been there for like a thousand years plus, like are still working and the traps still work and like all this sort of a thing. So. Yeah. Well, this movie is actually supposed to be a big influence on Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first Indiana Jones movie, and both like how Charlton Heston dresses and the fact that they're seeking some treasure. In this case, of course, they're looking for a, a car, an ancient carved stone called the Sunburst that's hidden in a tomb in Machu Picchu somewhere. So it's all very similar to Indiana Jones. It's all ridiculous. It's not how it is in real life, listeners, and that's what we're going to be good. <laughs> All the traps would have been destroyed, so yeah, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah, that's or, the beauty uh, yeah. of archaeology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've yet to be um, to stumble on a booby trap yeah. digging shovel test. I mean, I think, like, you know, when we talk to the public, that's one of the kind of myths that we have to dispel is what are the sort of things that we can even find, and why are there only certain sorts of artifacts and objects that we can find on some archaeological sites because of this huge issue of preservation. And I think that's definitely one of the most important things in um, really understanding archaeology is Mm -hmm. why some things are preserved and why some things aren't. We only have so many of these sites from certain time periods that are preserved. We're never going to get any more of them. Um, And so that's why we need to be careful with the, the ones that we do have that are still here. I think one of the things that we'll discuss more with Dr. Halligan is how preservation even affects the kind of questions that we can ask as archaeologists. There are certain artifacts that we won't ever find because we just, there's no way that they can preserve, you know, if they're like things that are like cloth or baskets and Mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing. Loincloths. Yeah, or (laughs) loincloths. I don't want to find any of those. That'd be gross. Let me uh, do a real brief introduction to who Dr. Jesse Halligan is. She is assistant professor of anthropology with specializations in geoarchaeology and underwater archaeology. She earned a PhD in anthropology from Texas A&M University and a BA from Harvard University. Wow, fancy. In <laughs> She's anthropology. <laughs> She's very smart. Very smart with the specialization. But also very nice. She's also very nice, yes. Very kind. Dr. Halligan is the site that she's looking at. She's primarily, a lot of her research is at this one site in the panhandle called the Page Ladson site. Right, and Page Ladson is on the um, Osceola River. I mean, it's one of the most amazing sites in Florida because it's the place where the oldest known human-made artifact was found. Yeah. <laughs> it was found by yeah. Dr. Halligan. In Florida, not, not <laughs> In Florida, in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Over time, as the climate has changed from the end of the last ice age or the Pleistocene, as we call it in archaeology, <laughs> into the Holocene or the kind of geologic age that we're um, in now, the environment has changed there. And so what was once like a little spring-fed pond is now a kind of a basin within the Osceola River. Yeah, this massive river, yeah. right? So um, how, how times change. One of the things she's going to talk about in our interview is how the uniqueness of the geology and the the geography of yeah. that location has allowed her to ask um, so many different questions about the peopling of the Americas and the first people to come to what is now Florida that you couldn't ask at a lot of different archae- like a lot of other kind of terrestrial archaeological sites from yeah. that same time period. Yeah, and she goes into this really interesting part that's uh, related to the theory of the gender usage of some of these objects. Super fascinating, and that's you know a subject that we're going to be covering at, on another podcast way down the way. Listen up close for that part. Well, she explains it way better than we are, so uh, we're going to go and jump into that interview now. Now. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jesse Halligan 
from Florida State University. And thank you so much, Dr. Halligan, for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a big honor to get asked. I'm really excited to get to speak with you guys and, you know, share my opinions with the world at large. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this is going worldwide now. You guys are basically one step from being influencers now. Yeah, yeah. Like being famous for being famous. Yeah, Yeah. we just need to start getting free I know, we started getting free stuff. That would be like fantastic. (laughs) So I um, have been at Florida State since... um, 2006 now, but what I do is underwater archaeology. I'm a geoarchaeologist, which basically means I look at um, how natural processes have impacted the archaeological record by using a lot of different geological methods um, and doing a lot of analysis of stratigraphy, which is what all archaeologists do all the time, but I spend a lot more time in geology classes to learn how to do it with more, um, I don't know, longer definitions probably. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I'm an underwater archeologist is when I started graduate school in 2000, 2004, I guess, oh man, I'm old. Anyway, in 2004, when I started graduate school at Texas A&M University, I went there specifically because they have underwater archeologists and because Mike Waters was there, who literally wrote the book Geoarchaeology. Because I learned as I was doing CRM for a bunch of years in basically the entire eastern portion of the United States, that so much of what we try to ask and answer about past people is totally dependent upon the natural processes that have impacted archaeological sites, which is where we get to this podcast today. I was asked by you guys to speak because where I work in underwater environments in Florida, have some of the best um, organic preservation of anywhere in the United States for the type of archaeology that I do. I focus on the very first Americans, when and how and where and those those first people came from. And most of our dominant paradigms for the peopling of the Americas make us think that the very first Americans came from somewhere in Asia, somewhere in the end of the last ice age, probably sometime after 20,000 years ago, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 16,000 years ago. Now, Florida is literally across the entire continent from (laughs) Southeast Asia or anywhere in Asia, but there is still a lot that Florida can add to this discussion of who the first Americans were and how they lived and all of that sort of thing, because most archeological sites from the late Pleistocene from 21,000 years ago to 11,500 years ago are only, the only artifacts we have are stone tools and very few of those. And we sometimes have a few fragments of extinct elephant bones or extinct horse bones, but that's pretty much it, right? We have very little left. And so there's very little we can say, except that people made stone tools here. And there are hundreds of thousands of articles written about the Paleoindian time period, which is the term that archaeologists use for this period. Um, but it just means the Pleistocene peoples in the Americas. There's a lot more we can say when there's a wider variety of material culture left at your archaeological site. And one of the really big advantages of underwater sites ever in all of the world is that underwater environments often allow organic preservation that is not allowed in other environments. Mm. So what I mean by organic preservation is just material culture or materials of any kind, it doesn't matter, it could be um, tree branches or it could be cloth uh, that are made out of materials that used to contain carbon or did or still do contain carbon. So things that were once living at one point in time. Prior to the invention of plastics in the mid 20th century, almost all human material culture was made of organic materials. Like we made ceramics, we made glass, we made beads, but still the largest percentage of our materials were made out of wood and cotton and linen and paper and um, all of these other things. And so when we only have the non-organic portions, what we can say about past people is 
horrifically more limited than when we do have some portion of the organic materials. Mm. And in an ideal scenario, what would you like to have seen preserved to better understand some of these folks' lives? Okay, so I guess I should also, for those of you who don't have to deal with my, Becky and Nigel have had to hear me talk about my research so much they can probably <laughs> give my talk for me, for if there's people out there listening who have not heard it. So where I work in Florida is this series of freshwater spring-fed ponds that over time became part of river systems. As sea level rose at the end of the last ice age until the modern period, um, they went from being little tiny ponds to bigger ponds to parts of rivers. And in those little ponds, most of which are sinkholes, they infilled with all kinds of stuff. So one of the sites I've been working at for a number of years is called Page Ladson, and the organic preservation is so good there that one of the layers we dig through is literally 14,000 year old elephant crap. Like it's a layer <laughs> that's about a meter thick that is just elephant poop. Um, little sticks and hay and things like that. And there are a few stone tools in there because people were butchering uh, animals around the edge of this pond, but we don't have like the wooden handles of those stone tools. We don't have the baskets they were using to carry um, materials away from them. We don't have the cloth that they were wearing or the hides that they were wearing. We don't know whether they were wearing leather clothes or, you know, cotton clothing, right? Three piece probably, suits. Probably not cotton, suits. but <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, we don't, and there are tons and tons of seeds in that mastodon poo, including grapes and including um, various different types of gourds. And people could have totally been using those, eating them, using them as containers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But we only have proxy evidence for them being there because we have all those seeds. We don't actually have the containers or, you know, the food remains of the rinds or any of that stuff, which is all of what we would love to see. And a really sad part of this unique preservation situation, the fact that most of the organic materials are missing, that erases a lot of what people lit like a lot of what how people lived but it also erases a lot of the work that in most societies is done by women right mm -hmm. women in many 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 and probably even most hunting and gathering societies are the ones that are doing the butchery of the animals doing the tanning of the hides doing the making of the baskets doing the making of the clothing doing gathering and processing most of the plant remains that's what we know ethnographically, and we have no reason to think that wasn't probably somewhat true in the past as well. So we're seeing less of what women did by having bad organic preservation as well, mm -hmm. at least we think. So all so, of those things are what I'd like to see. I'd like to see the cloth. I would like to see the, you know, food remains, the, the plant remains. Yeah, it, it's crazy in archaeology that so much of like the questions we're able to ask and like investigate is like dependent on preservation and the sort of preservation we kind of can expect to find. So we're so limited by that factor sometimes, especially when we're looking, you know, for someone like you who's researching these even most ancient sites that are right. in the Americas. Exactly. Yeah. And we found some cool ways around that at Page Ladson and some of these other old sites. So we don't have direct evidence of exactly what people were eating or exactly what people were making. But those preserved materials in our sediments, they include, like I said, all those grape seeds. So we know that the elephants were eating grapes. We know what the environment was like a lot of that. And Another really nice thing is we can radiocarbon date those organic materials and so we can say exactly when those elephants were eating those grapes and exactly when those elephants were eating those gourds and exactly when humans left those stone tools on there. So 14,500 years ago, we know within 50 years when people were on the landscape in that area, which is sounds like a long time. But in archaeological terms, that's almost a blink of an eye. Yeah, and I mean, compared yeah, to 14,500. Right, exactly. Just absolutely amazing um, that you can get such a precise date. Yeah. You know, we should do a whole podcast on dating. Maybe February. Maybe for February. <laughs> <laughs> I think tying it into gender roles and, 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 and connecting the work that women did to the materials that you 
recovered. Is anybody else that you know of looking into evidence like that or doing work like that? Actually, yes. Like we, we in paleo get a bad rap for only caring about stone tools and all, <laughs> all about men all the time. But there are quite a few people that have done it, including a decent number of male authors, honestly. So a lot of people have done it through the lens of human behavioral ecology, like trying mm-hmm. to figure out who would be likely to do stuff by using various forms of um, effective temperature and things like that. Um, But basically the way we do it is through ethnographic analogy. We look at other cultures that are big game hunters or that are generalized foragers, and those are terms that mean specific things to archaeologists. But essentially, heuristically, if we're talking about people that are living on a late Pleistocene landscape where uh, environments are changing really, really quickly, And there's a lot of big animals on the landscape. There's been a lot of discussion on how important elephants were. Were they focusing on hunting them multiple times a year to kill them? And like that was what everybody was focused on. And if so, ethnographically, usually societies that live like that have pretty distinct gender roles and men do a lot of the hunting and women do a lot of everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're if they're on the other hand they were people that were using like everything on the landscape and you might kill an elephant once a year but you're more likely to scavenge elephants when you find them on the landscape and this guy David Meltzer at SMU has this really famous saying you know he thought that if a paleo Indian killed an elephant he talked about it for the rest of his life and there's a lot (laughs) of folks on the other side of the spectrum that think that that's what you did you know multiple times a year right And so if you're more of a generalized forager, gender roles tend to be way less divided, right? Because there tends to be less of a focus of, oh, we need to go get an elephant all the time to keep our food supplies up. We tend to, there tends to be a lot more um, different range of things that are exploited. So different times a year, men and women might be doing things, different things, but many times of the year they might be doing the same things. Or even if they're technically doing different things, like men are technically hunting, and women are technically gathering lots of plants and doing lots of other stuff, men wouldn't come home empty-handed. They wouldn't walk past a blueberry bush full of blueberries and not pick anything up because their their hunt didn't work, right? Like, so people, and that's probably true when they were hunting elephants too, like, I don't know, I've been known to go to the... <laughs> I've been known yeah. to the grocery store and just stand in the middle of the grocery store. I'm like, what am what am I doing here? So I don't <laughs> I don't know. You're a bad oh, gatherer. Seems seems like a man would biff that somehow. Given <laughs> <laughs> a specific list and you buy ten things at the grocery store, none of which are the things on that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah, exactly. I thought we needed more beer. I don't know. Nigel, you were supposed to bring the bottled gourds home. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly Uh, I mean there's a thing though like what we understand about hunting and gathering societies is they generally they're really flexible overall like they Mm -hmm. tend to be very ingenious and they tend to be very very clever and they tend to know a lot about the landscape that they're on which is not to say they're like perfect people living in perfect harmony at the perfect state of nature or anything like that like they overexploited things sometimes and they made bad decisions sometimes, but they were generally super resilient about figuring things out. So can you talk a little bit more, speaking of the landscape um, in particular, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what we think the paleo landscape in Florida was like? That is an awesome question. And oh, you, thank uh, you. I came up with it myself. <laughs> um, so... One of the things to remember about the Paleo-Indian landscape of Florida or the um, landscape during the late Pleistocene, so like I said, this time period um, from 11,500 years ago to say around 20,000 years ago, is it was so different than today that I can't give you any analog. Um, and one of the way that, ways that it was so different than today is the shorelines were more than 300 feet lower than they are today um, at 21,000 years ago, right? Like the coast of Florida was way out past the Florida middle grounds for those of us who are Floridians listening, right? Um, And as glaciers melted and sea levels rose, um, that humongous portion of the continental shelf 
was just being drowned slowly over time and sometimes really quickly over time. So now we're, we're mad that we have a few inches of sea level rise and like Tampa's feeling pretty <laughs> threatened by this. Few yes, yes. There were, there were times when there would have been a few inches of sea level rise a year and wow. on the Florida, on the Gulf of Mexico continental shelf. All right. So I just want to jump in here real quick. You know what? Dr. Halligan uh, is talking about these climate change, like the climate change that we see that occurred, you know, at the end of the last ice age. Um, I think it has, you know, it's interesting thinking about how paleo people dealt with that, but it also has some really important implications for preservation of sites from that time period. Because yeah. if you think about it, that rapidly rising, you know, sea level, it covered up hundreds thousands of archaeological sites that are now underwater in the gulf of mexico because people have always lived on the coast right exactly yeah they've always lived inland too but they've always lived on the coast yeah so it has um really interesting implications for um this you know kind of paleo research in florida and i think um more and more uh archaeologists especially who are interested in these like early like first people um who came to the americas are going to be looking um, offshore because, um, you know, because that's where the sites are, but then also because of the potential for this really great preservation. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like water world. Yeah. But without jet skis or Kevin Costner. Yeah. Cue sound effect back to the interview. That would have translated into you're a hunting and gathering person and you leave the coast for six months and you come back and the shoreline would be in a noticeably different place in six Mm -hmm. months, right? Like legitimately noticeably different. And you might've lost a hundred foot of shoreline in a year, like because sea levels were going up so quickly. So all of the information that we have about what the world was like in Florida during the end of the last ice age is the interior part. It would be like, reconstructing the environment of Florida by only looking at what it's like in Gainesville. And so, um, so this is what it's like in Gainesville and Ocala. This is Florida. And that's true ish plus or minus, but not really true. Mm -hmm. Um, During the time people were at Paige Ladson though, the environmental data that we got from the bottom of Paige Ladson, like I said, it shows that there were lots of gourds and there were lots of grapes. And so those elephants were probably there in the fall-ish when it was getting ripe. There were lots of cypress trees around because there's a Mm. ton of cypress seeds and there's a lot of, I've been told they're not actually acacia, but I've always called them acacia trees down here. The trees that are really spiky and have the little thorns on them that stab you and are awful. Um, (laughs) Anyway, there were lots of those because there's lots of those little thorns and the elephants must have liked to eat them because they're all over. They're delicious, let's Um, be honest. (laughs) They were delicious, apparently. Um, So those were all right around the pond that was Paige Latson. We have the macro botanical evidence of that, which just means the botanical remains you can see with your naked eye. But the micro botanical data show that except for right around these little ponds that were probably sort of like nice little oases, the broader area was probably more like a savanna or like an open prairie. Now, interestingly enough, though, um, I have a good friend who's a paleoethnobotanist. You guys should totally have her come talk sometime. Angie Grady, who she's the one who did all of that stuff. She like what she thinks that could be is yay yes it could have been drier and there could have been a lot of winds on the interior of Florida and it could have like kept tree growth down but I've had other people point out to me and she and she also buys this one thing so there are mastodon bones at Paige Ladson but there's also lots and lots of mammoth bones in Florida that date to this time and from what we know Mastodons were sort of like Asian elephants. They lived sort of in isolated groups and they didn't like they didn't live in huge herds and they like to browse on stuff. And that's what their teeth indicate and that's what their poo indicates. They like to graze on the fresh little green growth on stuff. Mammoths, on the other hand, were grazers. And they're so they're like African elephants and they lived in probably bigger herds, therefore, and they definitely wanted grasses and things like that. Now, African elephants keep the prairie the prairie. They knock down trees and they create 
acres and acres of prairie every year. The pollen proxies that we have tell us it was open, that there was lots of grass, um, but the exact temperature correlate of that is hard to interpret because of those big elephants that were on the landscape and they could have been changing it. Like they were earth movers. They're like people. They do yeah. stuff. And then once there's definitely people on the landscape, there's evidence that people are starting fires on purpose to keep the landscape clear the way they want it to. Oh, wow. So that also changes stuff and makes the landscape different. So we don't have this, uh, we have this idea in our minds that prior to 1492, the Americas were pristine natural yeah, landscapes. Yeah. And yeah. in Florida, for sure, for at least 11 or 12,000 years, people had been modifying the landscape to make it better for themselves. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, kind of one of the myths I always try to shoot down when I'm doing any kind of even general talk about Native American life in Florida is that they weren't passive with the environment. You know, I, it's all through the, you know, movies. Everybody's perception <laughs> about everything in this country is based on movies. I think that's a really important fact to kind of illustrate. And I, I didn't know anything about I, about the elephants altering the environment yeah, like really that, too. I mean, that completely makes sense especially based on how African elephants. Don't Asian elephants live primarily like in forested areas? Yes. Do you and, think? And we think mastodons did too, based on their, well, based on their crap at Paige Ladson, which was <laughs> definitely forested right there, right? But crap, crap, crap. It always goes back to crap, doesn't it, Becky? Exactly. Yes, it does. Okay, so I have a question. Why is it that Florida's springs and these kind of areas like have such a, great level of organic preservation that you're able to kind of, you know, Excellent. figure all these things out. What's the kind of mechanism that makes them such great places for preservation? You know, that's a great question. I honestly, honestly don't know. It probably, it's some, it's unique geochemistry, right? It's mm -hmm. like a unique setup, but I don't know what specific part of it is. I don't know whether it's the fact that the spring water is ever so slightly the exact acidity that it is. I don't know if it's the, the limestone basin, like the limestone bedrock here, is exactly the uh, right composition of calcium carbonate with negative and positive ions. Like, I don't know if it's the fact that the gradient of the coastal plain is so low that when water floods, like when we have major rainstorms and it floods even today, it doesn't scour the river bottoms. Mm -hmm. It's just the rivers go to be 50 miles wide. And so things get left alone in the bottoms of the rivers. Or So I don't know if it's, I guess, geometry or chemistry or all of those above. I'm assuming it's some combination of all of the above. But I yeah. honestly don't know exactly what it is. It's just is amazing and I'm really lucky to get to look at it and work yeah. with it. Well, it seems like, I mean, all those factors that you were talking about, it's like an element of luck too, that all of these things have to come together, like for these places to, to be there. Um, so there's yeah. so many, I'm sure there are so many other places where there was, you know, really awesome paleo evidence, but it was destroyed or scoured out or whatever happened to right. it. Those of us who do this don't think that the that Florida was unique at the time. Like, I mean, we don't think it was any more densely populated or people were necessarily doing anything different than they were elsewhere in the Southeast. I mean, I'm sure they're doing stuff differently than people on the Great Plains or something like that. But we don't think that the evidence they left behind was anomalous. We think what's anomalous is the preservation of those mm -hmm. sites. Like, if we could see you know, what people were doing in Georgia or in North Carolina or in Tennessee at this time, if they had the same sort of lucky preservation situation, we would see like the same sorts of stuff and the same density of archaeological sites and everything. Mm -hmm. In Florida, all Paleoindian archaeologists are scuba divers, mm -hmm. but outside of Florida, I don't know of any others that aren't ones that have worked with us, right? And so um, people for a lot of years have treated the underside of the waterline as a place that has scoured and destroyed all evidence of what came before. But research done by my predecessors and that I've luckily been able to inherit 
has shown that's not true at all, that lots of sites get destroyed all the time, and a lot of the sites that are underwater get destroyed, but there are sometimes ones that preserve if you're in the right time in the right place and looking the right way. You can find out. Really quickly, um, let's go to this third question before we say goodbye. What do you think will be left after us? Yeah, like um, 14,500 years from now, what are they going to find that we left behind? Uh, tons of plastic. Um, <laughs> maybe some of the metal car hoods and things like that. All the glass. <laughs> um, a lot of the stone and brick foundations that we have, but probably not very many of our bones. Like I say, plastic. Lots and lots and lots and lots of questions. <laughs> That's a perfect segue into part two of this conversation that we will be having um, in the near future. Yeah. Well, we would like to thank you, Dr. Jesse Halligan, for being on the Materialist Podcast. Thank you so and, much. That was awesome. Um, that was really me. awesome. Was great. You are quite possibly one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. <laughs> <laughs> all illusion, all illusion. No attention. <laughs> well, that was an awesome interview. I'm glad. Uh, I'm, we're very lucky to have yes. such a distinguished professor of archaeology on our podcast. I know. Yeah, she's so great to talk to. So yeah. it, was, um, it was like really awesome that we were able to um, include her in this episode. So if you could tell that the audio was a little bit different, we had we did like a three-way uh, Zoom interview with Dr. Halligan, so we weren't all in the same uh, in the same room. So um, thank you, Dr. Halligan, again for being on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Um, and I guess we should wrap it up. But let's talk about the second part B, part two of this uh, preservation episode right yeah so we'll have a little interlude between these kind of two halves of the episode yeah. a little halloween interlude what? but um the kind of the second half of this episode you know instead of looking backwards at you know what things are preserved from the past and how are these things preserved we're gonna look forward to the future the future <laughs> so we're gonna um talk to another uh, distinguished scientist that uh, we're friends with about um about some of the things that are going to be preserved for future archaeologists to find and all the sorts of material culture that we today are um, leaving all across the earth. Yeah, and Dr. Halligan gave a, a quite a perfect segue into that conversation, but we'll bring, we'll bring you more information on that in the near future, but keep your ears peeled for part D, the part B of um, preservation. Yeah. It's like back to the future of preservation. Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so um, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Um, if you're interested, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and Spotify, as well as Instagram and Facebook, all the social media. Big thank you to uh, University of South Florida. Um, thanks, USF. Thanks, USF. And thank you to Becky O'Sullivan, uh, my co-host. Thank you to um, Nigel Rudolph, my co-host. For But we're sitting in your office. Oh, yeah, that's so, true. That's yeah. true. So mad props to FPAN West Central. And uh, thank you to FPAN. Thank you to Have Gun Will Travel for allowing us to use their song, Silver in the Age of Opulence. Please check them out for more information on Have Gun Will Travel. Please go to hgwtmusic.com. Uh, thank you to all the listeners. If you are interested in Knowing more about uh, Dr. Halligan's work, you could find her on the uh, FSU Department of Anthropology website, and her contact information is there if you're interested in delving in deeper into what she is researching. Oh, we should say something about how you got interviewed for the Atlas Obscura article. Oh, yeah. Nigel, you're famous. Yeah, well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> I got interviewed for uh, the Atlas Obscura, which is like an online culture magazine. Yeah, they have a lot of really cool articles yeah, on there. Really Definitely cool check things. them out. Jessica Hester, the author of this article that I was interviewed for, actually um, got our name, yours and my name, from um, the, our colleague from the FPAN Southeast region, the director, Sarah Ayers Rigsby, gave her our contact information, reach out to us about talking about garbage, historic garbage, and, and the importance of it in, in archaeology. Yeah. And so we, we're in, featured in this article. Yeah, check it out. 
Sometimes trash is treasured in America's national parks. Bottles, cans, and more can reveal a long history of industry, recreation, and shenanigans. So check that out. It is September 13th, 2019 article on Atlas Obscura. AtlasObscura.com. I think we mentioned everything. We're good. Yeah, I think that's it. All right. Well, the, we will catch you on the flippity flip. Bye. I was just going to say something clever. It was going to be very clever. It's okay. What the fuck was I going to say? Hey, Miles, what year was that map made? Oh, I don't know. Probably a couple hundred years before. Oh, wow. Uh, President Lincoln. George Washington. Uh, Martin Sheen. Martin, Martin, Martin Sheen. Sheen. That's President Kennedy, you idiot. Well, same difference. I mean... He played Kennedy once. Oh, that's really smart. I'm glad to know you're using your brain. Yeah, well, at least I have a brain. So stupid, Mouth. Oh, yeah? Yes. <laughs> Shut up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This isn't gold. This is a wishing well. Look. Hey, you guys, look. look. It must be the old Moss Garden wishing well. You know, I always used to believe that when you threw your money in, it turned into your wish. Take no point. And I'll take two coins. No, that's not fair. Wait, 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 stop, stop. You can't do this. Why? Why? Because these are somebody else's wishes. They're somebody else's dreams. Yeah, but you know what? This one, this one right here, this was